Hey, you guys were just singing about Lazarus. I want you to think about something. If I can remember it, I'll give you a test at the very end of this class. How did Lazarus come out of the grave? Don't answer me now. How did he come out of the grave? I want you to think about it. I'll try to remember and ask you when we get toward the end. You know, Jed and I were just talking. When you guys sing the way that you're singing, if you really believe what you're believing or what you're singing, it's pretty hard to get up here and open the Word and teach a Bible class and give you that kind of enthusiasm, that kind of motivation. You know what? The Spirit of God can do it. And the reason is because the Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow. And it is a critic of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So I'm going to ask that God the Holy Spirit will take up His sword of truth on our souls this evening and do some spiritual surgery as we open His Word. Join me in prayer. And then we're going to open to Matthew chapter 13. Father, what a thrill it is to watch these young people united together in praise. And Father, we can only pray that they're thinking about the words, that they're thinking about what they're actually saying, and that the content of these songs, which is really just Scripture stated in another way, that it really means something to them and that they really believe it. And Father, all week long, I have carried a heavy burden knowing that there are kids here who still are rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, every year we have many hopes for the discouraged to be lifted up, for the broken to be healed, for the wounded to be restored, the blind to be given sight. But the burden that's always on our heart is that those who are still outside the family of God would open their eyes and their ears and their hearts and their souls to the truth of the gospel. And Father, if that hasn't happened yet for any young man or young woman here or even any of the adults who are joining us tonight, may God the Holy Spirit overcome my weakness and frailty my stammering tongue, my inability to even begin to express the glories of your grace and of your truth. Drive the sword of the Spirit deep into souls tonight. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. I was leafing through my Bible. You know, I have several Bibles. I carry uh, different Bibles sometimes with me because maybe I need something small, something easy to carry. And I was leafing through the Bible that I'm carrying here, and I found something you might find interesting. This is a permit that I had folded up in my Bible from the police force of the Republic of Zimbabwe, an official communication not to address, not to be addressed to individuals. Zimbabwe Republic Police Force Harare Suburban District. This is in Southern Africa. 
This is the permit that I got. Uh, this was in 2011. The permit that I got to do what we have been doing all week long. I had to go to the police department. I had to explain to them why we were there and what we were doing. And I had to get a permit. And every single time we met, there was a police officer that was positioned at the back listening to everything that I said, which is really great. You know, a lot of times in communist countries, we know that the communist authorities will infiltrate the groups while we're teaching, and that's great because they're getting the gospel. While we were with Fasil in Pakistan one time, we went into a village and they had a police escort there for us. And as we gathered the people together, Nan had some little crosses that a lady had crocheted and she was handing out these crosses as gifts to the Christians. And one of the police officers, Pakistani police officers, was a young woman and she broke ranks to come over and ask for a cross. So we never know what the Spirit of God is doing. This is a $100 bill from Mozambique. It's worth nothing. You know, I have wads of money. My house is full of money if you ever want to come and rob me. But most of it is like this. And sometimes you can have piles of it and it's worth absolutely nothing because the currency has been so broken down and devalued. You might be surprised to know that in Zimbabwe and in Ecuador and possibly other countries that I'm not aware of, their currency is now the United States dollar. Did you know that? Did you know that there are foreign countries who have now made agreements with our government to print our dollar. It says United States of America. It is a United States Treasury note, and they're printing them, and they're using those as their currency because their currency, like this Mozambique $100 bill, completely collapsed and was completely destroyed. I don't know how it's possible because it's not legal, but it's done anyway. All right, if you have opened with me, keep thinking about poor Lazarus. How in the world did he come out of that tomb? In Matthew chapter 13, a very short parable of the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of the kingdom of heaven parables. I'm going to make a very simple point. There's a lot that can be taught, a lot that can be dug out in these parables. They're primarily focused on the kingdom of heaven that is coming. But the, it, verse 44 says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought that field. I want you to just ponder that for a minute. You're walking through a field. Your toe kicks something. Uh, you look down. There's some guy, I think in Georgia, who just recently found over 700 gold coins from the Civil War, worth millions and millions of dollars in his field. Good illustration of the point here. You're walking through a field, your toe kicks something, you look down, you dig it up, there's a treasure chest, 
you hide it again and you go and sell everything you own so that you can buy that field because if you own the field, obviously, whatever's in the field belongs to you. He goes on in verse 45 saying again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. By the way, just yesterday I read of a guy who took his intended out for dinner. He was going to propose for her and they had oysters. I don't know why in the world anybody would want to eat oysters. Maybe you like them. To me, they're slimy, but whatever. Oysters. And while she was dining, as he was preparing to ask her, some of you are nodding, you may have read this. Guess what she found on her plate? A big, beautiful pearl, which they then used in her wedding ring after he, I, I don't know, you know, it's hard for me to put myself in the place of a woman, but if a guy took me out to a dinner and I found a pearl on my plate, I'd probably say yes, too. Who knows what's going to happen after that? Here's the point that I want us to get, young people. What do these parables mean to you? What are they saying to you? Maybe I can ask it this way. Who is the person going through the field? Who do you think he means? Anybody have an answer? Who's he talking to? Who's he talking about? Speak a little louder. Pre people that preach the gospel, uh, that would be a good application. People seeking salvation, that's a very good illustration as well. You could use it either way if you wanted to use it as an analogy. A guy goes out preaching the gospel, and what's he looking for? He's looking for treasure. We're here presenting to you the word of God, and we are seeking treasure. Or... From your perspective, you've come to camp, and hopefully you have spiritual hunger in your heart, and you are seeking treasure. You're seeking something worth more than anything that you've ever had. But I would like you to look at this a little bit differently. And I've just always seen it this way. I see this as Jesus talking about himself. It was Jesus that came into the field. If you look earlier in the parables, the field he identifies as the world. And the Lord Jesus Christ came into the field seeking treasure. We just mentioned it in one of the songs earlier. Jesus has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And you know what kind of treasure he's looking for? Today, he's looking for you. You're the treasure that was worth him coming into this world. Paul puts it this way in Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he eternally existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to grasp or cling to. But he humbled himself and made himself of no reputation, being found in the form of a man, he humbled himself even further, going ultimately to death on the cross, even the death of a criminal. 
Why in the world would the Lord Jesus Christ, seated in glory in heaven, surrounded by angels, which I will guarantee you, as great as you're singing, they can sing better than we can. And they sing his praises constantly. By the way, as I watch you all holding on to one another and swaying back and forth and expressing in that way your unity and your love for each other, the thought comes into my mind, what is it going to be like when we are standing in heaven singing praises to the King of Kings? You may be standing there, guys, with one hand on the shoulder of Moses and one hand on the shoulder of Elijah, or maybe it'll be David and Joshua, and you're standing there belting out as loud as you can the songs of praise. And you ladies may be standing there with one hand on the shoulder of Sarah and one hand on the shoulder of Rebecca, or possibly Rahab and Rachel, or possibly any of the other ladies that we could mention. One of the Marys or both of the Marys or all four of the Marys that we read about in the New Testament. Do you realize that one day that's going to happen? And it's not just going to be all of the saved from all of the ages belting out songs like we have never sung before, but we're going to be joined by a company of angels who have voices like we have never heard. It's going to be absolutely marvelous. And the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of glory and is seated at the right hand of the Father and has always been surrounded with nothing but glory, chose to step down from that throne and take off that robe of glory and step down into this world of sin, sorrow, and suffering and take on a human body and walk among men and grieve over their sin and grieve over the hardness of their heart. I believe that the Lord Jesus Christ was the most joyful man who ever walked the face of this earth. And it stymies me, it just confounds me how in the world one who loved every member of the human race the way he loved, who saw in every soul this treasure that if there was only one person, if you were the only one that would ever come to, to faith in him, it would have been worth coming down into this world and going through a life of being misunderstood and slandered and maligned and then ultimately to be beaten, abused, tormented and put on a cross and crucified to death. If you were the only one, you would have still done it. But he did it for each and every one of us. He gave up everything for you. Now, we've been talking this week about running to win, about winning the crown. And so far, I don't know, maybe it happened while I wasn't around, but I don't know if anybody has laid out the five crowns. So I thought I would lay out the five crowns, but I need six young people to volunteer to help me. Now, here's what is required. You have to have a strong voice. I want you to be able to stand up here and I want you to be able to open your Bible to a verse and I want you to read it loud enough for everyone to understand what you're saying. So 
I need six volunteers. I'll take you, I'll take you, I'll take you, I'll take you. I've got four. I need two more. Can you do it? Can you read for us? Maybe not. I need one more. Six of you. Come on up. Gotcha. Young lady in the back. Thank you. All right. Um, one of you has to be last. And we know that the last shall be first. You want to be last? You are charming. <coughs> Wonderful. Okay. So your text is not up there. You have the mystery text. I'll give it to you in just a moment. Young lady, I would like you to look up for me 1 Corinthians 9.25. I would like you to look up for me 1 Thessalonians 2.19. If you will, 2 Timothy 4. I'm oh, sorry. Uh, let's do James. We've done James 1.12. Let's do Revelation 2.10. Okay? Revelation 2.10. Uh, you have 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8, and you are going to take 1 Peter 5, 4. Okay? The mystery text Second, Second Corinthians <laughs> Quiet Got it? Yeah. Okay Alright just when you think that you're getting by with something, you find out you're not. All right, so these are the five crowns. These are five things God offers to each and every one of us if we are willing to simply run the race, play to win, sacrifice what has to be sacrificed, exercise, discipline, and so on. The first one we're pretty familiar with. I think it's been read three or four times, but we're going to do it again. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 25. And by the way, you're going to speak into this thing that just betrayed me. So if you'll come over here and read nice and loud. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we do it for one that is imperishable. Thank you very much. The imperishable crown, you could call it the victor's crown, the athlete's crown. But young people, for those of you, and I look out there and see some of you taking down notes, and I absolutely love it because that tells me you want to carry away with you something from this camp. The imperishable crown is given for exercising self-control, self-discipline. Young people, one of the greatest powers you will ever develop is the ability to say no to yourself. The ability to say no to yourself. All right, we're going to take the crown of joy, 1 Thessalonians 2.19. that yours? Yes. Here you go. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Thank you very much. Paul says that the crown of joy, and you can look it up in Philippians 4.1, is given to those who have won others to a saving knowledge of Christ. The very people that you lead to Christ, and you may never know, you may plant the seed, you may give a witness that you never know takes root and yet get into eternity and find out that that person later came to faith in Christ. You are going to have a crown that is commensurate to leading that person to a saving knowledge of Christ. 
in a sense, they're your crown now, but you're going to get the reward in eternity for leading that person to a saving knowledge of Christ. Crown of life, I started with at the beginning of the week, James 1.12, but we're going to look at Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. All right. So the crown of life, as James told us, is for endurance under pressure. It's not just gutting it out. It's not just saying, well, I guess I have to endure this. It's bearing up under the pressure. It's having that triumphant attitude under pressure that says, as James told us, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and endurance will have a perfect work bringing you to spiritual maturity and so on and so forth. So the crown of life is for bearing up joyfully. We just sang about it. Joyfully, triumphantly. Two or three of the songs had that idea. In the darkness, in the shackles, in confusion, in difficulty, rising up and being joyful in spite of the circumstances in which you find yourself. The crown of righteousness Paul speaks of in 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure is close. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. There is reserved to me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. All right. So Paul says, I am close to the time of my departure. In other words, he knew he was going to be put to death for his faith. He was led outside the city of Rome. He knelt down on the pavement of the Appian Way, and a soldier took his head off with a sword. By the way, that would be an easy way to go. I hope if I ever have to be martyred, I get beheaded. It's a quick and easy way to go. You don't even know what hit you. God was very gracious to him in that. But notice what he says. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. And what does it mean to love his appearing? It means we love his appearing and therefore we live for his coming again. We love the fact that he came the first time. We can't wait until he comes the second time. And he is coming again soon. And then we have the crown of glory, 1 Peter 5.4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. All right, if we read the first five verses, thank you, you guys can sit. Thank you very much. Many people call that the pastor's crown because in the context of those <clears throat> first five verses, uh, Peter is addressing those who are pastors and elders and shepherds of the church, and he's urging them to be faithful because he says when the chief shepherd comes, he will give you the crown of glory. So if we isolate this one for only those who are in the uh, pastoral ministry, you still have four crowns, and who knows if that's all. There could be others that we're not told about that are available to you. Now, 
Back to that guy walking into the field, the guy that is looking for the fine pearl. Would one of those be worth giving up anything in your life? I think any one of them would be worth giving up my life. I would give up my life tonight to gain one of those. That is, to me, a treasure. I was the treasure Christ was seeking. You were the treasure he was seeking when he came into this world. He gave up everything in order to buy this field. And how did he buy it? He bought it through his death. He bought back the world that was lost through the fall and the sin of Adam. And he did it knowing, knowing that like on the Titanic, the majority of the people there, you know, they were singing and they were dancing and they were dining and they were having a wonderful time until all of a sudden there was that terrible crunch and all of a sudden everything in their lives changed. Out of 2,300 people, 705 to 712 people survived. The rest went down to a watery death. Why would you and I, with all that is around us, all of our opportunities, all of our privileges, all of the distractions, all of the things we can get involved in, why in the world would we dedicate ourselves to gain one of these crowns? Well, you're going to hear from the last mystery passage, Anne. The last passage is in 2 Corinthians 12. No, 5. No, sorry, 5. That's chapter is 5. The verse is 12. 14 and 15. Oh. You're close. Sorry. 14 and 15. Thank you. For the love of Christ compels us, since we have reached this conclusion. If one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. All right. Thank you very much. The love of Christ, expositors and scholars argue, is that objective genitive or subjective genitive, meaning is it his love for us or is it our love for him? And my answer is yes. The love of Christ for me compels me because I judge that if he came into this world and died for every member of the human race, it's because we were all dead. And he died so that those who live, that's those of us who have trusted Christ, those who have been raised up and seated with Christ in heavenly places, given new birth, regeneration, so that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who loved them and gave himself for them. You know, I love great stories. I love Lord of the Rings. I love King Arthur. I could go on and on and on about the great stories. Many of the great stories of the world you have probably never heard. Uh, there is a great epic story that is told in India. And it is about a guy by the name of Sundar Singh. Now, if you know anything about India, you know that if you have the last name Singh, it's because you are... A what? You are a Sikh. And he was from a rich, powerful family. 
and they are held in very high regard. They are the upper crust, if you will. And he came to Christ as a young man, and his family disowned him. And he went out into the desert, or out into the jungle, and just began to pray and pray and pray. He knew very little. He probably knew less than most of you who are here right now about the Bible and about the story of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he knew who he believed, and he knew that he was committed, and he prayed and prayed and prayed. He almost starved to death in the jungle, and I think some people finally found him. It's been years since I read the book. But anyway, he was restored. He spent the rest of his life, he owned two sets of clothes. He wore a robe. If you've ever seen some of the holy men of India, they wear a saffron robe, kind of an orange robe. Well, he cho chose to wear this orange robe as a sadhu. This is what they call their holy men, but he was not a Hindu holy man. He was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, bearing the righteousness of Christ. And he traveled the length and the breadth of India. And his story is still told, and the books about him are still sold today. So famous did he become a man who owned nothing, a man who asked for nothing, that he ended up visiting Australia and Britain and the United States. He believed that the love of Christ compelled him, like the man in the field, to give what he had, all that he had. He was rich. To tell other people about the saving work of Christ. I met a man by the name of Satchanandam. John Francis will remember meeting this guy. Very much like Sadhu Sundar Singh. But I'm not going to get into that story. My point is simply this. There are men and women around the world who are so compelled by the love of Christ that they sell all that they have in order to serve the one that they love. He doesn't ask all of us to do that. He's not asking you to give up everything, but he is asking you to do one thing, surrender everything. If you can come to God with your hands held out and say, here is my life. Here's my father. Here's my mother. Here's my brothers and sisters. Here's my school. Here's my friends. Here's my possessions. This is all that I have, and it all belongs to you. As long as you allow me to keep it, I will thank you for the privilege of holding what you have given. But at any time that you choose that I should give up this or that or any other thing, then you have my... Permission. Can you imagine that the God of the universe would ask our permission to simply give all that we have to Him? Young people, that's your soul. I believe it was A.W. Tozer who said, In every soul there is a cross and there is a throne. And each and every one of us must choose every day which one we will take. Do you know why unbelievers are afraid of the gospel? Do you know why they try to avoid it and get away from it and they don't want to hear it? Because it threatens this right here. 
it threatens them sitting on the throne of their life. And they don't want to give up the throne of their life. And they would rather sit on that throne until they end up in the lake of fire burning forever and ever. Because when you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have to get off that throne. Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Number one requirement. What am I denying? I'm denying my right to sit on the throne of my life. I am no longer the king of my little kingdom. I'm no longer in charge of my life. I step down from that throne and I lay hold of the cross and the cross which was death for him is life for you and I. But you know what? For all of us who are here who have trusted in Christ, that battle rages every day. Let me ask you a question. Be honest with yourself. Evaluate your day. Did you spend most of your day here or most of your day here? Were you the one that was directing your life, making your decisions, doing what you wanted, choosing for what was enjoyable and beneficial for you? Or were you willing to lay yourself aside? If any man will come after me, Jesus said, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after you. Say, what is the cross? It's very simple. It's his will. It's his plan for your life. It may be different for you than it is for me. It will be different for each and every one of us. But he has a plan for your life. And to choose that plan is to lay down your right to the throne and to take up glory, to take up the crown. I can see the crown on the heads of people who are sitting here. I don't know you all. But as I look out and I see some of you that I've known for years and years and I've seen your faithfulness and I've seen your dedication and know you don't have to be a pastor and you don't have to be an evangelist and you don't have to be a missionary. All you have to do is be faithful. I see husbands who have been faithful in their marriage and I see that crown on their head. I see wives who have been faithful in their marriage and I see that crown. I see mothers and fathers who have raised their children to love the Lord Jesus Christ and I see that crown glowing on their head. And my prayer is that one day, and it may come, young people, very, very soon, you and I will stand in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will either have a crown or we will be without a crown. We sing the old hymn, the old song, Will There Be Any Stars in My Crown? You better worry about having the crown first. Make sure you have the crown. It's not being a big shot. It's not being known. It's being faithful. It's being faithful wherever God has put you in your life. You know, there's a little poem that says, I am my neighbor's Bible. He reads me when we meet. Today he'll read me in my home, tomorrow in the street. He may a friend or relative or a slight acquaintance be, but I'm my neighbor's Bible, and he is reading me. You're writing a gospel a chapter each day, by the deeds that you do and the words that you say. And men read what you write, whether faithless or true. So what is the gospel according to you? Young people, let's take seriously the time that we've spent together, the classes that have been taught. You know, I close with this thought. The prophet Isaiah, as he wept over his nation and cried over the people turning their back on their Savior, 
God spoke to the people of Jerusalem and Judea through the prophet Isaiah, and he said, look at what I have done for you. I delivered you out of Egypt. I brought you into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. I put up a barrier around you as a man would do around a vineyard. I planted you in good soil. I expected that you would bear fruit, and when I came looking for fruit, I found nothing. Here's the statement that haunts me. In Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 4, he says, what more could I have done? Young people, could I ask you tonight, if you're here still without faith in Christ, what more could he have done? What more could he say to you? What more could he show you of the love of Christ in this gathering? In just your unity as you're singing together. Where else in the world are you going to find that? You're not going to find it. What more could He do for you? Because when the Lord Jesus Christ went to that cross and stretched out His hands and they drove in the spikes and He hung there between heaven and earth with people spitting at Him, mocking Him, throwing dirt at Him, and He's crying out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. He was thinking about you. He had you personally in mind. I pray that you'll not turn your back on him. I pray that you'll open your heart up to him and allow him to come in. Thank you, young people. It's been an amazing week. It's been a tremendous privilege for me to come back. I first came to this camp in 1992. I believe we were probably right there. Pete was here. That's when I first met Pete. My world has gone downhill ever since. No, Pete's been such a marvelous, amazing blessing to us. But uh, what a privilege to come back and have the opportunity to address you again, to share with you the love of my life, the only one that I love more than I love my lady who is at home now, holding down the fort and waiting for a 13th grandchild to come into the world, little Colton Levi Cunningham. Can't wait to meet that little character. The only one I love more than her, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope you'll love him as much. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for these precious lives that you have entrusted to us for this brief week. Thank you for the opportunity that each and every one of us has had to stand up and to do the very best that we could to share the love of Christ and the light of truth with these young men and young women. But ultimately, Father, we know it's not on how well we have prepared or even how well we communicate. We know that it's the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, working on sensitive hearts and souls and bringing young lives into the kingdom of God. So, Father, we entrust the lives of these young people into your hands. We pray that we may all one day meet together in glory and we will sing the songs that we sang tonight in the company of millions and millions of angels. I can't wait to hear it. Bless the rest of the evening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, young folks. Thank you, sir. You have... Hey, how are you?
Mount Lazarus will come. How about what? Mount Lazarus. Come out of the tomb. <laughs> Thank you, my friend. You just saved me embarrassment. How did Lazarus come out of his tomb? Malachi. Jesus raised him from the dead. Jesus raised him from the dead. That's right. Who else has an answer? He came out alive. He was dead and he was alive. Anybody else? Sorry? It was the love of Christ. Love of Christ. Outstanding. There's one thing you're all missing. John 11, you can't say. <laughs> He's been with me too many places. John 11 specifically states that Lazarus came forth bound hand and foot. Have you ever tried to walk bound hand and foot? He had to come out like this. And you know what great lesson there is in that? There's a whole lot of Christians that Jesus Christ has called out of the tomb and they're alive, but they're still bound. Jesus said, unbind him and set him free. And that's why we're here and that's why we're speaking to you because we're trying to set some of you who are alive in Christ but still bound, set free. Don't go through life hopping, bound, hand, and foot. Amen? Thanks for reminding me. God bless you.